Psalm chapter 8, beginning and only, verse 4. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. You may be seated. So let me ask you, this is one of those um, dialectical parts, dialogue. What makes human beings unique? I want to hear your thoughts. What makes human beings special or different from the animal kingdom? Okay, that's the Bible answer. That's the big main point of the sermon. Don't get to that one yet. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. All right, besides the, the good, real, true answer of being in the image of God, what's some other things? What was that? We can reason, okay? So we have a brain that can... Reason, think logically, yep. What else? We have creativity, yep, to make art and different things. What else? What sets us apart from animals? We built society. So by that, do you mean buildings or the social structures? Okay, yep, we built society. What else? We care. Okay, we care, we cook our food, yeah, all the time. Okay, yep, very good, that's, that's a great point, especially in contrast to animals, that's, all right, the animal instinct, yeah, very good. Anything else? What sets us apart from animals? Well, you, you all have touched on a couple of them, but... I looked up, I, I, I did this sometimes for my sermons. I Googled, what makes human beings special and unique? So I came across an article on Live Science, which is a secular evolutionary website. And so again, not at all related to God and thinking about God at all. But they posted an article just entitled, Top 10 Things That Make Humans Special. Here's a few of them. Complex speech, nobody mentioned that one yet. Number two, Bipedal locomotion. Now, that means we walk on two legs all the time. Now, yes, apes can walk on two legs. Bears can do that as well. And birds do that pretty routinely as well. And kangaroos hop on two legs. But human beings are the only mammals that walk on two legs consistently. Uh, Number three, we're the only creatures. Nobody mentioned this one. The only creatures that wear clothes. That's a big one. Complexity of the human brain. Another kind of animal one in terms of nature. We're the only ones with the ability to wield fire. I thought that was kind of interesting. We're the only species that's known to blush. And the other one they mentioned, or another one they mentioned is long childhoods. Human beings have extremely long childhoods. Those of you who are parents, you know this, or you've been around young children. For example, an alpaca can stand and walk 15 minutes after being born. And by day two and three, they're running, all right? Versus a child where it takes months for them to just crawl and then many years for them to actually live on their own, right, outside of the nest. So all of these things are true, right? That, that, those things do um, differentiate us between the secular society in terms of the animal kingdom. But all of them fall radically short of explaining what makes human beings unique, what makes us special. And that verse we read this morning, I think it's, yeah, it's right there. It, it encapsulates perfectly the question before us. What is man that you, that God, is mindful of us? 
the Son of Man, that you care for him? What makes human beings so special in the first place? It's not, it's not a, a hard question, right? Chris gave it the, the answer right at the outset. The, the thing that distinguishes us from the rest of the animal kingdom, if you could boil it down to one word, I would arguably say is the image of God. That's what sets us apart from every other creature on the planet. The fact that we as human beings are made in the image of God. And where do we find that? Genesis 1.27, we got a, a specific reference there. I, I was going to say more broadly Genesis 1 and 2. But yeah, in the very beginning. So turn there, if you will, Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to pick this one apart a little bit. In Latin, that phrase, image of God, is imago Dei. When you walk away today, your main takeaway is quite simple. You've heard it before, you know it, but I hope to give some more reminders, maybe some other perspective and specifics of what it means. It's a simple point today. Human beings are made in the image of God. Human beings are made in the image of God. What does that mean? We're going to consider four aspects of that question, four answers. Number one, the very good image. Number two, the marred image. Number three, the perfect image. And then finally, the restored image. But yes, the very good image that begins, and we find that in Genesis 1 and 2. And one of the ministries I love is Answers in Genesis. And there, they have a nice picture diagram where it says, so there's a foundational stone right here. Right there it says Genesis 1 to 11. And that encapsulates the creation account, uh, the, the flood, and also the Tower of Babel with the, the nations being spread around the world. Genesis 1 to 11 is the foundation for the rest of the Bible. If you take out the first few chapters of the Bible, the rest of the Bible is hard to piece together. Because we find the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of humanity, all in the doctrine of marriage and family, all in the very first chapters of this book. So it's vitally important that we pay attention to what God says here. So in Genesis 1, we find the creation account, God making the universe. And we see, I'm not going to read the whole text, just a summary, God made space, the, the, the space right, out there. He made earth. He made light. He made darkness. He made the sky or the atmosphere. He made the dry land and plant life. He made the sun, the moon, and the stars, the sea creatures and the birds, the land animals. And he did all of that by speaking. Let there be light. And there was light. But then in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we see the Lord taking a little bit of a different approach into finishing his creation in putting the cherry on top of the ice cream. Look at Genesis 1.26. Then God said, actually, look at that phrase right before in verse 25, that last phrase. God saw that it was good. God looked around, days 1 to 6, saw all of these different things. It was good. I like this. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Man, man and woman, right? Humankind, man, 
is the pinnacle of God's creation. Ephesians chapter 2 refers to God's people as the handiwork of his creation. And here in verse 26 to 27, you have to understand God doesn't have a physical body. He doesn't have physical hands, but the precise care and attention to detail that is described here strongly implies handiwork, craftsmanship, personal touch from the Lord. Let us make man. Let us form him. Let us fashion him. Let us create him. Let us mold him. That's a lot of care and precision. And after the creation of man, there's a a nice phrase there that describes what God just did. God looked around in verse 31 and saw that it was very good. uh, Days 1 to 6, everything God made was good. Then after he created man and woman, it was very good. This is the pinnacle of God's creation. So also look at verses 26 and 27. The repeated phrase, the repeated word there is the word image. It appears there three times. When you couple it with the word likeness, it appears four times. Now the big question, man is made in the image of God, what does that mean? What does that mean? Think about the most plain, basic meaning of that word. Okay, what, what does being in the image of something mean? Well, it implies similarity. There's similarity here. There's some overlap. It's not a precise duplication or replication, but there is a lot of similarity going on. Uh, a common way to think about it is in the context of human beings. Right? He's in the spitting image of his father. He, he's like his father. He's similar to his father, or you know, vice versa with the, the daughter and the mother. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, we find this language. When Adam had lived 130 years... He had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. The very same language used there to refer to human beings. So we are like God. What does it mean that we're in the image of God? We are like God. We are similar to God. So being, in another way to think of it, another dimension, being an image of God, we represent God. We represent him. Think of another way. Think of it like mirrors. We are called to reflect God in the world, to represent God in the world. Right? God is the source of love, beauty, and goodness, and he created us to spread it, to share it. That's in part what be fruitful and multiply means. It's not just have a bunch of kids. I mean, there could be, you could read that into it. But it's about spread my image, my glory, my beauty around the world. Be fruitful and multiply and increase in number. And the other thing about image, an image stands in the place of something. For example, if you have a picture or a painting of a sunset over the Blue Ridge Mountains and it's hanging up in your home, it's very beautiful, very, very nice to look at. But that image, that picture is a stand-in for something far more grand than that tiny little picture. And that's the reality of the mountains, and same thing with human beings. We're a tiny little stand-in, a tiny little image of the greater reality behind us and above us, who is God himself. So you might be saying, okay, I got all that. I I get that we are like God. Well, how are we like God? No theologian, no pastor, no scholar has ever been able to pinpoint it down to one thing. Like, oh, we're in the image of God. That means exactly and precisely this. There's no consensus. 
specifically. There are a lot of different components to what this means, and I'd like to share with a few, a few of them with you. We image God. We represent God. Here's 11 for you. Again, successive. We represent God. We are like God in that we have an inner sense of right and wrong. We know right from wrong. This differentiates us between the animal kingdom as well. Number two, we have immaterial spirits. We all have physical bodies, but we also have an immaterial spirit, a soul inside of us. And then number three, because of our inner spirit, we have the capacity to relate to God, to have a relationship with Him, a personal connection with Him. We can praise Him, we can pray to Him, and we can also hear Him through His Word. Number four, our souls inside of us are immortal. They will never vanquish. They're never going away. Our bodies may be destroyed, our bodies may be crushed, but our souls, our spirits, will live on forever, either in eternity or in the lake of fire. Number five, we image God through the good gift of gender. I'm not implying that there's genders in the Godhead, but what I mean is we image God, we represent God, through the difference of gender. Now, think, right, man and woman, they're both human beings, but there are some distinct differences between them. Now, the Father, Son, and Spirit, they are all God, but there are some distinctions between them. So we represent God in part through the uniqueness of being male and woman, being male and female, man and woman. I'm going to preach um, a full sermon on, on that later on, so I'm not going to you know, tease that out. Because you could preach a whole sermon on, um, you know, male and female, how God created and all that. Genesis chapter 2, seeing that account. So that'll be another Sunday. Number six, we can reason and think logically. No monkeys will ever be thinking about the Trinity. and Trying to pick it apart, pick him apart. Number seven, the use of complex, abstract language. Number eight, we as human beings, we have an awareness of the future. Of, the, of eternity in general, but also of the distant future. We, we know next year is around the corner, and we all, in Ecclesiastes has a verse where it says, God has put eternity into the heart of man. So we all know that there's something coming after us. Number nine, uh, I think, Andrew, you might have mentioned it, the artful creativity. Right? God is a very beautiful God. He, he's the, the greatest painter ever painting the sunsets that we see. And he's just such a, a unique, creative God. But that's reflective in human beings. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, the pyramids, Mount Rushmore. Human beings are extremely creative. Number 10, complex emotions. Uh, one theologian, he, he wrote this. He said, we as human beings can experience a lot of different emotions at the same time. For example, after watching my son's baseball game, I can feel sad that the team lost, happy he played well, proud he was a good sport, thankful God gave me a son, joy of seeing him grow up, and anxious because we're going to be late for supper. We can experience all of that in a split second, the complexity of human emotions. The last one. We've been given authority. Nobody mentioned this also. What, what sets us apart from other animals? We've been given authority over the earth. Human beings are the top dog. We are at the top of the food chain. Right? It's not to say in some kind of crass way, or, but we, we are at the top. 
And God created us to be that. He gave us the command, cultivate the earth. Tend to it. Cultivate it. Care for the earth. That's what we're called to do. So those are a few components of what it means to be made in the image of God. Now, to be clear, the image of God in a person is not determined by performance or function. This is very important to state in today's day and age. For those who are unborn, for the sick, for the comatose, for the elderly, etc., they all bear the image of God fully. Every human being does. If you may not be able to speak, if you may not be able to move, if you may not be able to cognitively think, it doesn't matter. Every human being has the image of God printed upon their soul. So therefore, every human being is worth, is worth something. They have dignity. They have worth. And we are called to treat one another with respect. And this right here is the foundation of the Christian social ethic. Right? The world cries out, we need to be kind and, and tolerant to one another, and be peaceful with one another, and love one another. On what basis? The Christian answer, the Bible's answer, is the only one that is, that is foundational, that, that makes sense, and it gives us a strong basis to loving our neighbor as ourself. Because my neighbor is made in the image of God. So brothers and sisters, God's image in us was very good in the beginning. But it leads us to number two, the marred image. We do not live in a Genesis 1-2 to two world, as it's been said. We live in the Genesis 3 world. Same humans who can design and paint the Sistine Chapel are the same humans who are capable of horrific school shootings and the genocidal mayhem of the Holocaust. How do we make sense of that? The same humans who can pour out so much of their lives in serving in hospitals, caring for the wounded, can also wreak havoc upon entire cultures. The answer is found in Genesis chapter 3. Right? It's all in the beginning. And a whole sermon could be preached on the fall. How the fall came about, the effects of the fall. But here's a summary and a reminder for you. Adam and Eve, they were created to image God to reflect God, to represent God in the world. A way to think about it, they were created to receive the beauty of God and to share the beauty of God with one another. But instead of doing that, instead of receiving His love with gratitude, instead of that, what did they do? They were ungrateful for His provision. Instead of trusting in His love, being satisfied with His love, they were greedy and filled with lust. Instead of rejoicing in the truth of who God is and what he had commanded, instead of rejoicing in that, what did they do? They swam in the pool of lies, the lies of Satan and lying to one another and lying to God. Instead of selflessly cultivating the earth and tending to it, they selfishly indulged in their flesh. This is what happened in Genesis 3. It's the fall of man. It's when the image of God was broken It was marred, it was tainted, it was shattered. And this manifested itself in three big ways. Human beings had alienation from God, right? The the mirror, to use that analogy. The relationship with God was broken. The relationship as a married couple, man and woman, was broken. And the relationship with the earth was broken. We have toil now 
when we work. In all of the chaos in the world, all of it can be found and be tied back to what happened here in Genesis 3. But if Genesis 3 explains sin in the past, Romans chapter 3 explains sin in the present. So turn there with me, if you will. Romans chapter 3. Right, Because the Bible is not just a history book. It's not just about, hey, you know, back then, Jesus did this, therefore. No, it's, this is what the Bible happened back there, what, what it says happened back then. The Bible also speaks about today, about 2023. Not in the sense of who's going to be president and that kind of thing, but about the really foundational things of life. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, describes our state as humanity. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Look also at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans 3 described the present condition of humanity. Genesis 3 described the past in the Garden of Eden. Romans 5, 12 makes the connection, the bridge, of what ties these two together. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, being Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Human beings inherit the sin nature from Adam. A biblical doctrine, I'm not expounding upon it a lot today, but a biblical doctrine is that of total depravity. Every human being is inherently corrupt and morally bankrupt. No human being is going to heaven in and of themselves. Because every human being falls radically short of the perfection that God requires. Every human being is radically tainted with sin. That doesn't mean, total depravity doesn't mean every human being is as bad as they could be. But it means every fiber of our being is tainted by sin. That's what that doctrine means. So, having said all that, okay, I got that. But does that mean human beings should be destroyed and of course not because even though the image of god has been broken every human being still has that image this is key to remember every human being still has the image of god in them the image of god was not lost at the fall it was merely broken and tainted every human being is still created in his image today and instead reflecting beauty what's the fruit of the spirit Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Couldn't we use that in the world? Wouldn't you like to see that in the world as a whole? Of course we would. But instead of reflecting that, what do we reflect? It's the prior verses. The fruit of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19-20. The things that we reflect that come out of our hearts are sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, 
selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Does that not describe our world as a whole today? But the important thing is, every human being still has the image of God. Right? James chapter 3, verse 9. James is writing thousands of years after the creation account. James 3, 9 gives a foundation for our Christian ethic of what we're called to do. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings, those wretched, horrible, nasty human beings. That's not what he says. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. With it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Human beings who are in the image of God. And then James continues, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Yes, your neighbor may have left his lawnmower out in the front yard and all of his trash everywhere. He might be annoying. All right, this is a superfluous example. That does not mean you curse him. He is made in the image of God. That doesn't mean you speak ill of him. He is made in the image of God. His image was very good. It's still inside of us, but his image has been marred. That leads us to number three, the perfect image. If God created us to reflect him, we have to ask the simple question, what is God like? What is God like? If I were to tell you, take out a pen right now. Actually, let's do it. Take out a pen if you've got one. If you don't have one, it's okay. For those of you who uh, like to learn well in life, you, you carry around a pen all the time. Get out a pen, get out a piece of paper. Now, draw an echidna for me, please. No Googling. Echidna. Somebody draw it. Echidna. Somebody draw it. <laughs> I want to see an echidna. Somebody is bold enough to let me see their submission. Raise your hand and I want to take a look. See who comes close. I don't need no uh, you know, three hour long drawing. Let me just see a sketch. Okay. Let me see. It's not a square, is it? Okay. All right. There's a circular shape. We're getting. All right. Not bad. The circular shapes. All right. Yeah, so what is an echidna? You might be wondering. An echidna is the thing I can think of that it looks closest to is like a hedgehog. It's like a little tiny porcupine. It's an animal, okay? And it's one of the few, the, o- the only other mammal is a platypus. The platypus and the echidna are the two mammals that uh, have eggs. Wait, you have a picture? Yeah, yeah. But did you say that after I said Okay, good. Good, good. Yeah. So that's what an echidna is. It, it looks like a hedgehog or a, a tiny little porcupine. What's my point? Why did I mention that? If you're going to draw a picture of it, you need to know what it looks like in the first place, right? Pretty simple, basic concept. The same goes with God and being in his image. If you and I are called to be image bearers, if we're called to represent, to image God, what is the ultimate source like? What does he look like? What does he look like? What does God look like? Who does God look like? 
trying to get more specific. Who is the Sunday school answer? Jesus. Jesus is the perfect image of God. If you're wondering what is God like, who is this ultimate kind of generic concept up there, look at Jesus. Jesus is the image of God. That's in Colossians 1.15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. John 1.14, a very great verse, especially in the context of Christmas time. The Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus is the living embodiment of glory, of grace, and of truth. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the Son, Jesus Christ, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. To understand who we are, to understand how we're called to live, we must see Jesus as the perfect image. Okay? This isn't maybe anything revolutionary for you. It's reminders. That's in large part what we do in the Christian life. I remind you of the simple basic truth in the Bible. Jesus is the perfect image. And that leads us to the last thing, number four, the restored image. Okay? What does all of this mean for me? I get in the past, God created Adam and Eve, very good in his image. I get that. I get that his image is still in human beings. I, I buy that so far. I also get and very well see that his image has been tainted and tarnished. And you look around at the chaos in the world. And I also get that Jesus is the perfect image. But where does that leave me? What does that mean for me today? The good news of the Bible, the good news of the Christmas season, isn't just that Jesus came. It's not just things in the past. It's the good news that Jesus offers to piece you back together today. Jesus didn't just come in the past. He also offers to be with you today and piece your life back together. A common analogy when you think about the gospel, you may have heard it explained like this before, and I think I've said it up here, is human beings are like empty cups or empty vase, whatever. Or you have the empty heart, right? The classic image. We have empty hearts, empty cups, empty vases. What we need is for our hearts to be filled. So what do we human beings do? We look around in the world at sex, at drugs, at money, at power, at so on and so forth. The things of the world to fill that void in our heart. When it's only God alone who can fill that void. I think there's merit to that. That's true. But another thing about it is the gospel is extremely rich and deep. No one analogy can fully represent what it is. So another helpful way to think of it is through the image of God. And that is the image of a mirror. We're like mirrors, but we're broken. And now the gospel message is that God offers to piece us back together, to bring us and make us whole. And not just the beautiful thing about the gospel, it doesn't just piece it back together and there's cracks everywhere, but through Christ and through the Spirit, he's going to make us completely whole again and completely renewed and completely united together with him. And that is the goal of the Christian life. I like what one person said. He said, the image of God was our created design in the past. The image of God is also our eschatological destiny in the future. That's where we came from, but it's also where we're headed, to be like God. 
to be whole, to be complete. Romans 8, verse 29 tells us, Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's why he created us, to be conformed into the image of Christ. Brothers and sisters, our hope is summarized in 1 Corinthians 15, 49. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, it says, As we have borne the image of the earthly man, referring to Adam, as we as human, peop- as human beings, as people, as we have borne the image of Adam, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. That is referring to Christians. One day, We're going to be like Jesus. We're going to be whole. We're going to be complete. But is that the Christian's greatest hope? Because so far, it's all about me. But listen to 1 John 3.21. It's not just about Jesus restoring us per se. It's not just being like Jesus. Our greatest hope is to see Jesus. To see the perfect image. Listen to 1 John 3, 21, and how, how closely knit these two thoughts are together. When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The greatest hope for Christians is to see the perfection of beauty, to see, to see and savor the perfection of glory, which is Christ himself. And when we see him, the Bible says, we will be like him. That's what our souls need. And that's what this world needs, to be like Christ. And the way that you and I are going to be that today, right, before we get to heaven, the way that we do that is how? It's by doing the same thing as 1 John 3.21 talks about, by seeing Christ, keeping our eyes fixed upon him, keeping our heart fixed upon Jesus, keeping our minds fixed upon him. For when we see him, we shall be like him. So brothers and sisters, in conclusion, how would you answer Psalm 8.4? What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. How would you answer that? Easy, straight up answer. Human beings are made in the image of God. Very good. What does that mean? How would you explain that to someone? Let's pray and then we'll close with the doxology. Father, the doctrine of the Imago Dei of being made in your image is quite something to, to look at. And part of the thought that keeps coming to my own mind is that expressed in Psalm 8.4 and all of our talk about what is the image of God and how the image has been marred and what ties it all together and what's so mind-blowing is the fact that you care for us so much. In the midst of all of our feuding, in the midst of our, frankly, our ugliness, 
the fact that you still care for us will truly blow our minds if we can ever grasp that. We thank you for that beautiful reality and truth that you do indeed care for us. And even though we are marred, even though we are broken, we thank you for Christ and for sending your Son to redeem us, to piece us back together little by little. And will you please take this doctrine, which we can have the temptation to just keep it in our heads, please plant it deep into our hearts so that we might treat other people with the same dignity, the same worth, the same value of how you treat us and how you look at us. For those who are hard to love, for those who have wronged us, for those who disappoint us, please help us to love, to forgive, to show care, to show compassion. We know that can only happen as we see and savor you, Jesus, as we behold your glory. Please help us in that process. Help us this week. and Help us, especially this week, to be grateful for all that you've done for us. Thank you that you are mindful of us and that you care for us. Help us to do the same with our fellow brothers and sisters, both in Christ, but also our fellow human beings, our neighbors, whom you've created in your image. Commit these things to you, not asking for our will, but yours to be done. In Jesus' name, amen.